0: Well, guys, if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to be in the first chapter of Colossians. This is the third week that we have spent in the New Testament book of Colossians. If you're uh, kind of new to navigating your way around your Bible, uh, Paul wrote a bunch of letters, a, a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, that God used him to write a number of letters in our New Testament and clumped together our Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you can find one of those four, you can find your way to Colossians. It's the fourth one. Um, I think some way I was taught when I was a kid to memorize it was General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I got married and told my wife that trick, and she said, no, 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 it's George eats pickled cucumbers, as though there's some immutable law about how this must be remembered. I say General Electric Power Company. You can say George eats pickled cucumbers or whatever you want. But Colossians is there on the tail end of those four letters in quick succession. And this is the third week we've been in Colossians, chapter 1. And here's the flow of the Apostle Paul's argument up to this point. In verses 1 through 14, we saw that there is a link between growing in the knowledge of God and becoming more and more like our God. Uh, This is not something that we graduate from in the Christian life, um, but over and over and over again, the way that God will make us more like our Jesus is by growing in our knowledge of Him. Uh, In the Bible, the famous quote from Jesus, quoted often around such conversations, is sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. Sanctification is that process by which we're made holy. And that happens in an interactive way with the Word. We grow in the knowledge of God, and we become more like Him. There is a link. And then, uh, last week, in our study of verses 15 through 23, we were given a very practical example of this truth. Paul helped us to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, His person, His work, His nature, and all with an eye that we would be changed By the knowledge of it, either by embracing the gospel personally, or, if that's already happened, by living ever after in a gospel-shaped way, as a sincere, from the heart, imitator of Jesus. That's what we are as believers, as Christians today. We are sincere, from the heart, imitators of Jesus. And, of course, in order to imitate Jesus, we must see Him clearly. And so Paul... In verses 15 through 20 really laid out a very clear picture for us of who Jesus is that we might then live as imitators of him from the heart. Now, this morning, we're going to wrap up chapter 1 by giving some thought to verses 24 through 29. Uh, In these verses, Paul is going to tell us how living in a gospel-shaped way has found expression in the way he pursues non-believers and seeks to serve God's people the church. He's going to share with us three essential aspects of Christian ministry. And I, as an act of mercy to you, am only going to talk about one of them. <laughs> because in my office this week, I mean, I, there were three there, and I could have kept going and going and going, and I was like, oh no, we've got to stop after one. But I'll tell you what those three are in just a second, and I'll tell you which one the Lord chose for me to, at least I felt led, to share with you here this morning, spend some time with. But first, let's just read what the Apostle Paul has to say, verses 24 through 21 in Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now here in these verses, I, I really do think Paul lays out three essential aspects of authentic Christian ministry. And you are, if you are a believer today, you are involved in Christian ministry. So these are for everyone. I, by saying Christian ministry, I think some of us in our minds, we think, oh, well, he's talking about pastors now or something like that. I'll just tune out. That's not true. Uh, Paul here lays out three essential aspects of what ministering at living out your, your giftedness in the body of Christ and an un, among unbelievers will look like. And the first thing he highlights is that the avoidance of suffering will not be, cannot be, the main aim or goal of a Christian's life. Uh, He is not somebody who sidesteps suffering. And the reason why he doesn't do that is because there is a higher goal that necessitates that he does make his way through suffering. So that's number one. The avoidance of suffering is not be, cannot be the main aim of how he lives his life. Second, there must be a clear proclamation of Jesus as Savior and Lord at the center of what he does. He is not a self-help guru or anything like that. He is going around enduring suffering so that he might proclaim Jesus. Jesus is what people need. And so he's, that's his thing. At the very center of what he says and does is a proclamation of Jesus. And third, there is a dependence on Jesus for the doing of it all. We see this in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and that he powerfully works within me. So in other words, he is not... Um, yeah. I think that's the best way to put it, is he's looking to God to supply what's needed for the doing of the work in ministry. So those are the three things he, the three aspects he highlights here in these letters and these verses: don't sidestep suffering. Proclaim Jesus and trust in God to provide what's needed for the doing of all of it. Now I only have time this morning to highlight one of these three, and that's going to be the first one, suffering because I'm fun, right? That's what we're doing. We're just, I'm a funny, good time Charlie kind of guy and just want this to be light. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the first one, mostly because I started writing the message, and I, my mind was just, I was enjoying that part, and then I got to the second two that I had outlined, and I was like, okay, I got to get through these. I was like, no, I don't. (laughs) I'm just going to spend time in the first. You guys know Jesus is supposed to be at the center, and we're supposed to lean into him, right? Okay, well, we'll talk about that another day. This morning, fun stuff, let's talk about suffering. He says in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. There's a bunch of things in here I want us to see. Uh, I'm going to get to them here in time, but the first thing is just this: the phrase "I rejoice in my sufferings." I rejoice in my sufferings. It's like I'm comforted in my pain. I'm satisfied in my hunger. I don't. These are. This is a counterintuitive way of talking. It's obviously provocative in the way he's worded it. It's almost trite so many people have made this observation, but rejoicing in sufferings is not something we do, generally. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, and that's the point, is he's wording it in a way that grabs our attention. It's noteworthy that Paul writes this line from a prison cell in Rome where he has been imprisoned for proclaiming Christ. Uh, this is not written in safety somewhere. Uh, he is somebody who is speaking from the midst of his personal experience at the time he writes this. He says, I rejoice present tense in my sufferings present tense. He is suffering when he writes it and he rejoices it. He's not looking back on some past experience with rose-colored glasses. He is saying in the midst of his present tense sufferings, I am the, my emotional posture towards all this is that I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. So he knows a thing or two about suffering, and he's not really commenting, though, on what our emotional posture towards suffer, suffering should be in general. His comment about rejoicing and suffering is meant to confront us not over our shabby attitudes toward the suffering we experience, but rather to elevate in our minds the superior weight and excellence of something else that makes any suffering experienced in the pursuit of it a light and joyous thing. In talking about suffering here, suffering is not really the subject of what he's talking about. Two very noteworthy things are attached to the news that Paul suffers in this verse. Yeah, he suffers. So what, we might say? Well, the first thing he attaches to the fact of his suffering is, as I've already said, his emotional posture toward the suffering, which is one of rejoicing, not what we might expect. But the second is that his suffering serves a larger cause. It has purpose. And this purpose is summed up in the phrases, for your sake and for the sake of his body, that is, the church. For the sake of others, namely the church, Paul does not avoid suffering. To be sure, he does not seek it out either. He's not a masochist. He doesn't roll out of bed and go, man, how can I get beat up today? How can I run afoul of the Roman judicial system? That would be great. That's not what he's setting out to do. But when the pursuit of this goal that he has come to understand is weightier, more glorious, more excellent than anything else, requires him to go through suffering, he rejoices. He rejoices at that. Something else is the highest goal in his life. And when he encounters suffering in pursuit of that, he rejoices not because suffering is good unto itself, but because it was necessary for the advancement of that good thing. This is why he rejoices in his sufferings, not because of them. Now, some of this might just land on our ears as very vanilla. Like, of course. But let me ask you this. And don't answer out loud. Don't even answer later in the car when you're talking about the message. Because I imagine, as a pastor encourage me, I imagine on the way home, you guys just talk about the message and that's all. As you're talking later, don't, just think right now, how much of how you're spending your day is a conscious effort to avoid suffering? How much of it I think a fair amount for me. I do a lot of things to avoid uncomfortable conversations. I do a lot of things to avoid confrontation. I do a lot of things to avoid physical pain. I do a lot of things to avoid suffering of any kind, any flavor. When I was a police officer at the academy, I went to the academy with a bunch. For some reason, a lot of people who get out of the military go into police work. There were a lot of ex-military people at the police academy with me. And at the academy, they were fond of saying to you, your biggest job is to go home safe. And everybody who'd been in the army or the navy or the marines were like, no, that doesn't make any sense, (laughs) right? Because they'd had beaten to them that the most important job is not that you go home safe, but that our objective is met. And that lives will be spent in the achievement of that. Those two very different mentalities that were hard to bring together in our academy class because they would go, Wait, you're telling me, I remember in one class, one guy actually said this, that it's more important that I go home safe than that a little somebody like a child's life is saved? It was a difficult question. I think Paul, though, is here is saying that the most important thing is not that you avoid suffering. The most important thing is not that we go through our lives going home safe every night. There is a cause that is worthy of sacrificing your comfort for. There is a cause that will require you to suffer, and it's worth it. The good thing that is advanced through the suffering of his servants is so good, so excellent, that you will rejoice in your sufferings because the good thing is advanced. And what a sad thing it is to live a life with our comfort and of suffering avoidance as our highest goal. We already said that to be a Christian is to be a sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus. If I'm living today with avoiding suffering as my highest goal, how can I look even a little bit like Jesus who came into the world? Why? To go to the cross. I can't do it. And Paul has not made it his goal or his objective to sidestep suffering, to avoid it. Sometimes we might hear people use the phrase, that's my cross to bear. And you've heard this, I'm sure, right? This uh, comes, of course, from that famous quote of Jesus in Matthew 16, 24. It's, it's It's a phrase that's used in just common American English, but it comes from the Bible. And it's that famous passage in which Jesus instructed his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. However, this phrase and how it's commonly used today in just street English in America, we say, that's my cross to bear. It's commonly applied to things like having a headache or weeding the garden or a spouse who's a constant nuisance to you. It's just, ah, that's my cross to bear, right? That's how we say it. However, properly understood, and let's do this as Christians, this is one of the most important things Jesus said to us about being disciples, is that bearing our cross describes the trouble we would not have if we weren't Christians. And Paul here, when he is saying these sufferings, these are problems he would not have if he were not a Christian. That's what's meant by take up your cross. It's suffering for a cause. The sufferings that Paul is experiencing... And in which he rejoices are the sort that he wouldn't have if he were not a follower of Jesus. Jesus. But he rejoices in those sufferings because they bring salvation to others. And of course, again, this reminds us of Jesus. Of course it would. Paul was a Jesus follower. He was a sincere imitator of his master. And Jesus modeled this for us. In Hebrews 12, too, it says, Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross There you go Paul rejoices in his sufferings for the joy that set before him He endures imprisonment in Rome, rejoicing in it because it's for the great cause of Jesus, who likewise modeled for Paul what it is who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, I think we all understand that the pursuit of many worthy things must of necessity involve suffering. The pain of child labor results in a baby. A week of hard work results in a payday, and the planting and weeding and watering and picking and canning results in all those jars on the shelf. Pain is swallowed up in joy. That's the language of John 16, 12. But again, Paul is not really writing about suffering. Verse 24 is not about suffering. It is about joy. You remember when we did our study through the Beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. That word blessed in Greek, makarios, is happy. And there is, we can argue about this, and some people have, but in, in my understanding of the languages that gave us our Bible, there is not a cat's whisker of difference between the word joy and happy. I don't believe so. Paul is not telling us here about suffering. He is telling you the very counterintuitive path towards joy. Jesus in the Beatitudes has some very counterintuitive Beatitudes, things like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, blessed, almost all of them are very like, kind of like, that's not how I normally think about happiness and joy. But what we know is that, Happiness comes through the pursuit of something other than happiness, a lot like money. There's a difference between wanting money and wanting a job. And we all want to be happy. We all want to be filled with joy. But many people make happiness and joy the main pursuit of their lives, and the Bible shows us that happiness, joy comes through the pursuit of something other than happiness or joy. That is righteousness. That is the great cause. We make these things central, and we find ourselves joy-filled and happy. And so Paul here is not writing about suffering. He's writing about joy. And he isn't even saying that suffering is always redeemed when we willingly enter into it for the sake of something else. Guys, that's not always true. Just think of an ambitious person who has set for themselves as a goal the attainment of some grand objective. They want to be first in their field. They want to be top of the leaderboard, the corner office. They want to be elected. They want to be famous. The pursuit of that kind of big, ambitious vision will require lots of hard work, loads of sacrifice and suffering to accomplish it. They're going to have to live a very disciplined life and forego many things and work very hard. And they're going to suffer as they scrap their way to the top of the heap and toward the achievement of that grand objective. But the experience of many has been that after climbing to such heights, after the thrill of achievement, there came a cratering certainty that they had made an unworthy thing the great central pursuit of their lives. And instead of Paul's rejoicing, there was only despair at the waste and unsatisfying vanity of it all. So it's not like suffering is redeemed when it's endured for some great cause. No, it's redeemed when it's done in service to the cause, (laughs) the only thing that's eternal. If you're not living for Jesus today... I can tell you something about what you are living for. It has its beginning and its end in this blip of a life. If today you are living for family or for career or for some professional attainment or for any of a thousand other things, if you are living today that you would be desired by that special person, I can tell you something about that thing that you have made central to your life. The day is coming where you're gonna leave it or it's gonna leave you. And the achievement of it will result in a cratering sense that you've wasted your days under the sun. I remember one day I drove with my dog Tilly, who's dead now. Uh, We drove into the tar farm and we were bombing back into the back field back there. I was looking for rocks. And Tilly saw a bear. It had been laying down eating strawberries in the grass back there, I think. It's my theory. I don't know what it was doing. Maybe it was writing poetry. I don't have a clue. I don't know what bears do. But the bear jumped up and took off running into the woods, and my dog jumped out the window and chased it. And I thought, what is that dog going to do if it catches the bear? (laughs) Tilly was a little bigger than a cat. Pretty sure the bear was running from my truck, not the dog. But I thought, what will that dog do if it ever catches that thing? All of its excitement would change to bitter disappointment pretty quick. (laughs) Now, a lot of people in this world are chasing a bear, and they're chasing it with energy and verve, and they are going after it. But as soon as they catch it, it turns out to be a big pile of wrong. What have I done? Suffering apart from a good and noble purpose is like having your money taken by a con man. Duped. Utterly duped. But sacrificial suffering for the sake of others and for that which is eternal and good and there will only be good in eternity is the sort of suffering that we will look back upon with joyous satisfaction, like money well spent, time well spent, And every difficulty along the way, totally, totally worth it. So that's number one here. Let's just look at the quality of Paul's joy. He feels joy in the midst of difficulties. And that's, I think, what, what we should see here is his joy, not his suffering. But there's something else here I want to spend time on. And you can see why I cut out the last two points. Before we move on from this thought about suffering, I I want to spend a little time with something else that Paul says in this verse. He wrote this, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. What in the world does that mean? It almost has like a whiff of heresy about it, doesn't it? It says that something's lacking in Christ's afflictions and that Paul is in his own flesh going to make up for that. What in the world? I encountered, I've read through Colossians a mess of times in my life, and I encountered this, you know, whenever, when you read the Bible, there's, you always find stuff there, um, no matter how many times you've been through it. I was on vacation here recently, and I read through Colossians during my vacation down in Vermont. And one morning very early, it was me all alone in the house, I was reading, launched into Colossians, July 31st was the day. And I read that line, and I was like, I do not understand what he just said. And I read it again, and again, and again, and I did not understand. And over the course of the day, my dad's a pastor, my brothers are pastors, I said, what do you make of this verse? There was some speculating. There was some <laughs> none of us really knew. It really bothered me. And when I got back from vacation and I got in my office, I one of the first things I did was threw open my commentaries and said, "Man, what did the great giants say about this verse?" I had to know. And a lot of them just talked about how it's been a controversial line. A lot of them apparently didn't know. Well, let's say what we do know. For certain, nothing, of course, is missing or inadequate in the atoning worth of what Jesus accomplished for us in the sufferings on the cross, his sufferings on the cross. And we know that because Paul told us that. Paul has told us numerous times in his letters, and many of them we've studied here in this very room together, that the sufficiency of what Jesus did for you is total, it, he did everything that's necessary. So any fair reading of Paul's writings contained in our Bibles would certainly affirm that. Paul, perhaps more than any other writer of biblical text, teaches us that no person can add to the finished work of Jesus. So if that's not what he means, what does he mean when he writes about his own experience suffering for the cause of Christ, saying that he's filling up what's lacking? in the afflictions of Christ. To help us understand what he means here in verse 24, and I have to thank another pastor um, who pointed me to this uh, verse, we we have to look elsewhere to another place in the Bible where Paul uses this same expression. In Philippians 2, 25 through 30, Paul is thanking the Philippian church for some support he had received from them that had come to him by way of an emissary named Epaphroditus. The Philippian church had sent this man, Epaphroditus, to Paul with some love gifts to support and encourage him during his imprisonment. But Epaphroditus nearly died in the process of delivering those, uh, that gift from the Philippian Christians to Paul. So he says here in Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30, I'm going to read these verses, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So received him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete. It's the same word as filling up in Colossians. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now that's the same line, the same words. It's a sentence constructed in the same way. And so it stands to reason that whatever he meant by Epaphras making complete what was lacking in the service of the church would mean the same thing as when he talks about filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the Colossian church. Well, what was lacking in the Philippian church? John Piper puts it this way. He says, well, what was lacking was there was some, some distance between them. Here they are over in Philippi, and they love Paul. Oh, how this church loved the apostle. They loved him. They wanted to serve him, and they wanted to bless him. And that's like Jesus dying for sinners at a place and at a time in history. It's him saying, I love you sinners. I died for you sinners. I want you to be saved sinners. And then there are these big gaps of time and distance between him and them. Just like there's a big distance between Philippi and Rome, where Paul is, and they want him to be the beneficiary of their love and all their gifts and the books and the clothing and whatever they wanted to give him sent by Epaphroditus. And so they chose a representative, and they sent him so that their longings for Paul's blessing could be filled up so that the love that was felt and expressed in Philippi for the apostle, for the apostle could be complete through the person of Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome. I think that's what it means, says John Piper. So just as Epaphroditus came to Paul to make visible and real the love of the Philippian church for him, and to make visible and real their willingness to suffer and sacrifice in order to help him, Paul envisions his ministry as making the self-sacrificing love of Jesus visible to the people he encounters, even in in his own sufferings for them. He willingly embraces suffering, and he does not look away from the suffering of others. He enters into it all that he might deliver to others the full weight and promise of the gospel that Jesus purchased for them on the cross, and convey the heart of Jesus to them, and also thereby make complete or fill up what was lacking." we come back to this point a lot here at State Road. God accomplishes almost nothing except by creaturely means. In the midst of the world He created, even in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall, He put the tree of life in the middle of the garden that Adam and Eve might eat from it and have life. He used a tree to accomplish something for Him, a creature, a creation. And at every point in the Bible, in our lives as Christians, in the history of the church, God has chosen to use human means to accomplish all kinds of divine ends. For whatever reason, and it is mysterious, it pleases God, it glorifies Him most to save people through His church. He didn't need human beings to write the Bible but he chose to do it through the inspired pen of human authors. He doesn't need your prayers. But he's made amazing promises to us about what happens when God's people pray. He doesn't need evangelists. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need a Josh Tate to stand up here every week and do this kind of thing. He can do all these things personally all by himself, but he chooses to use you and me. He chooses to make Jesus visible through a church that does not sidestep suffering. All of the love and the grace and the mercy that was poured out on the cross, there's one thing lacking. You. (laughs) Somebody to take the full weight of what Jesus did and bodily deliver it to people. Divine ends, human means. It's right and true for us to say to people that Jesus suffered and died for them. But something is lacking if the message bearers of the gospel don't look a thing like they're Jesus. They don't demonstrate a willingness to suffer and die for the same cause. I'll tell you the biggest struggle for me, if I can be vulnerable and real for a moment, I can envision myself enduring suffering for the sake of the cause. The thing I'm tempted to sidestep is your suffering that looks like a, a difficult thing to step into, and I don't know what to say or what to do, and I don't know how long your suffering will last. Paul not only avoids suffering personally, but he does not avoid the suffering of others. He, he, he steps into the messiness of that place with generosity and joy I've told this story to you before, and I'm sorry for being so repetitious, but it was just such a powerful realization one time. When I was living in California, we would have these thru-hikers come through, and I know we've told you this story before. But these thru-hikers would hike the Pacific Crest Trail, and when their arrival in town would just coincide with this outpouring of goodwill, people loved the thru-hikers. They'd buy them restaurant meals and let them stay in their house. And they'd give up a day at work to drive them to the next trailhead. And I marveled at this. I marveled at the generosity of my neighbors. People they didn't know. They'd buy them a restaurant meal. It cost a lot. They'd give up a day at work. They'd open their home to perfect strangers. But then the through-hiker season would go past, and the the town was hard as concrete. (laughs) People who gave a ride to a through hiker would drive past their neighbor who had no car but was walking a mile to work. People who bought perfect strangers a meal in a restaurant hardened their heart against the needy who lived next door or lived in the bushes behind next door. And I thought, what in the world is going on? I'll tell you what was going on, the person next door represented a philanthropic Vietnam. No exit strategy. It is messy for days and days forever. If I help them today, they're still going to be there tomorrow with the same need. But I can scratch that itch with this stranger who's on a lark, probably rich, independently wealthy, (laughs) hiking to Canada. Oh, and they felt so good about themselves. How novel of me. I'm one of the good ones. Guys, I want us to see this about Paul. (laughs) He did not live for the avoidance of suffering but he rejoiced in it for the sake of the cause, the advancement of a good thing. He didn't avoid hurting people or their messiness or the open-ended nature of how tough it was. He waited in there. And again, guys, in all of this, he looks like who? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, who came to us in the open-ended nastiness of our brokenness. And he began serving us with incredible generosity, giving his own flesh as the bread of life, going to the cross for us. And then I look at my own heart and I go, "Oh, Jesus, <laughs> make me more like you because I ain't there yet." But hopefully I'm on I'm on the road. I'm trying. And in exposing that to you and being vulnerable, I'm, I'm grateful that this is the kind of community where I trust that you'll encourage me towards Christlikeness and hold me accountable to that. We certainly need that. But I just took away from this message that in the midst of Paul's proclaiming of Christ and his resting in the power of God to do all of this ministry stuff, he just lived in such a conscious way that he did not avoid the hard stuff when it looked like it was going to be his hard stuff he was stepping into or stepping into the messiness of somebody else's suffering. That's an authentic aspect of Christian ministry. We see it in Paul here, and I, I would love to see it lived out in my own life and in the church that we all serve together. So it's right and true for us to say to people that Jesus suffered and died for them, but something is lacking if the message bearers of the gospel don't demonstrate themselves a willingness to suffer for the same cause. We don't deliver the content of the gospel without the heart behind it. Suffering is not merely a product of Christian faithfulness. It is the means, the strategy by which God intends to make our Jesus visible in these days. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Amen? Amen.